All right, so this morning we look to uh, Romans chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 18 uh, to 25. And I wanted to read uh, verses 18 to 32 uh, for the full context uh, as we look to the first uh, seven verses of this major section. Uh, We'll look at the following verses in the following week. Uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I've entitled uh, this sermon, The Consequence of Truth Suppression. At first, I had thought to uh, to title it The Consequence of Disobedience, but there's so much more going on uh, in this passage. And I also was going to title it The Consequence of Unbelief, but uh, there is so much more that is going on in this passage than simply unbelief. Uh, so in light of what the central idea of the text is, it is about truth suppression. It is about truth suppression. And so I have entitled this sermon, The Consequence of Truth Suppression. And in verse 17, we see it as a companion to our text. We'll look at the first seven verses in this particular context, verses 18 to 25 of Romans chapter 1. But verse 17 Uh, The righteousness of God is first revealed. So we see not only in the gospel is the gospel display and proclamation of God's righteousness, but it shows you that God himself is righteous. It is his perfection that is on display through the gospel and through the proclamation of it. That we see a righteous God who comes to credit unbelievers with his righteousness and those unbelievers being the elect who are now brought to faith uh, by the God who elected them. And so we see his not only righteous character, but the perfection of his righteousness from faith to faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ in the preaching of the gospel and obeying what the gospel demands by God's spirit. And it is without exception or partiality that that happens to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And those who would be considered non-Greeks, as thought of by the Greeks, named barbarians. And we also see that there's no distinction. There's no distinction in the fact that the gospel comes to the foolish and to the wise. Those who think themselves to be wise, and also those who are the fools of this world, according to the wise. 
And yet, in verse 18, when we come to verse 18, we see, uh, we see another clear perfection of God. And by perfection, I mean his attributes. God is the sum and substance of all of his divine attributes, uh, divine perfections. And all of them work together in maximum capacity for all time, displaying to us who he is. And so in this, in verse 18, we see a clear perfection of God that is taking place when people reject the gospel. It is his wrath. It is his wrath. And it's not only an expression from God, but it is his essential nature. It is a part of his perfections. It is why when you proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm not simply engaging in semantics, but it is why you don't simply tell people to have a personal relationship with God, to have a personal relationship with Christ, because everyone has a personal relationship with God and everyone has a personal relationship with Christ. What we're trying to define is which one. Which relationship do they have? That's essentially what this passage is answering for us. It said everyone has a relationship with God uh, and everyone has a personal relationship with God. But the question is, is it one of wrath or is it one of righteousness? Is it one of mercy or is it one of judgment? And so in this sense, you'll see that this passage shows us that God himself is very intimate. He's very intimate with the believers. We saw that before, but he's very intimate with the unbeliever. He's very direct with the unbeliever. He's very personal with the unbeliever. The unbeliever knows him just as the believer knows him. However, the absence of special revelation is why there isn't the sense in which they know him in a saving relationship, in a saving sense. But he is known by them. So the question is not, shall we give them more information and how should we give them more information? It's not that they lack what they uh, it's not that they lack the information about who God is. It's that they will not bow to the revelation that is before them. And so God's wrath is in this instance, as the as Paul writes here, it is made plain. It is made manifest. It is clear. It is revealed. They know who he is. And there are objects of his wrath that are very much acquainted with who God is. And they are described here by who they are and what they do in light of what they know. And so even in the case of, I mean, I know people have sometimes called it presuppositional apologetics or presuppositions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But I believe all that is simply trying to express that you don't need to go about giving unbelievers more information for information's sake. It's not like they need proof. It's not like we have to take them from a place of they don't know God, poor unbeliever, and we have to help you understand who he is. Instead, I believe that evangelism ought to take a more direct approach. You're telling people what they already know. And that they're in open opposition toward it. That they in fact know the nature of God. They know who God is in his creation. And yet what they do with that is they uh, deny it. And I'll explain the nuance of that as we look at the verses that follow. But they, these, are, these are objects of his wrath. And the sins that they commit in the verses that follow 18 and beyond... The sins uh, they, com they commit demonstrate what happens when the unbeliever stubbornly, blatantly refuses to acknowledge God and honors. So these sins demonstrate what happens. So it's not simply that you get to reject God and then nothing happens to you. Or that you reject God and simply go on about your life and, you know, that, that's just a, you know, Christianity is just a spiritual religion uh, for those who are spiritual. I prefer to be spiritual in another way. That's not what happens. That's not what happens. Because to reject God, the father, to reject God, the son, to reject God, the Holy Spirit incurs not only his wrath, but it also opens you up to being handed over to a depraved mind, a depraved mind. And you see that because we're talking about 
nature, the nature and being of God, the essence of who he is, his perfections, especially in this particular passage, one that deals with his wrath. We're not talking about someone who is capricious, someone who's out of control. We're not talking about one who simply looks at the world around him and goes off or goes nuts. We're talking about one who is demonstrating something about his nature and character that is fixed and that is settled. So when we talk about his wrath, we're talking about a settled fury. It's a settled fury. And by settled, I don't mean to tame it because God's wrath is greater than any other wrath that anyone could ever face because you're talking about eternality. But it is fixed and it is a fixed and settled fury that burns toward the unbelieving. And it not only burns toward them. It's also kindled by their sins. It's kindled by their rebellion. But it is also one day. And in this case, as they are handed over, this is simply an expression of it. But it is dispensed against the sinner. It comes from God to them. They meet him in his wrath and his wrath meets them as he pours it out upon them. And it is dispensed against the sinner who will not believe in light of the evidence, in light of his commandments, in light of the creation around them, in light of the proclamation of the gospel. It is settled, it is composed, and it is righteously vengeful on the basis of perfect righteousness. That is what I would say about his wrath. It's settled, it's composed, and it's perfectly vengeful on the basis of perfect righteousness. And this wrath and its perfect righteousness, because that is the standard by which his wrath is poured out on unbelievers, his perfect righteousness. And it is essentially the question that Paul is seeking uh, to answer throughout Romans. How can God be just and justifier? And I would say a short answer is because of his perfect righteousness. He can be just and justifier. But this wrath is set against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. These men are not recipients of this wrath based on some shifting standard. Or that they did not, as I mentioned, have enough information about God's righteousness. It's not like they lack the information of God's standard of godliness and of holiness. And so therefore, something happens to them. That is not the case. It is the opposite. It is that what is said here, that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's talking about where God makes his throne. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is at a glance a very interesting way to put it. That it says that his uh, that that men uh, men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It is not simply that they suppress the truth. That is true that they have. But that's not simply the idea here. Listen to this. It's that they use unrighteousness to suppress the truth. That's what's in view here. That they actually use their unrighteous deeds to push down, to hold down, to, to, uh, to disguise, to eliminate, and to do away with the proof that comes with the truth. It is that they use unrighteousness as a weapon against the knowledge of the truth. Even though the truth is plain to them. That is the idea of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That they use unrighteousness as a weapon against the knowledge of the truth. Even though the truth is plain to them. And verse 19 gives you the cause as to why this indictment is so stinging against them. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. 
For God made it evident to them. Verse 19 eliminates any notion that God somehow is unfair in dispensing his wrath against sinners. It eliminates that. They know who he is. And they not only know who he is, but they know what he has done by his power in creation. So everyone starts from knowing. I'm not saying that everyone starts from knowing him in salvation. Not at all. But everyone starts in knowing him. Everyone knows that they have rebelled against him. Everyone knows that he has created the world as it has. It is why the gospel doesn't come across as some kind of informational lecture. The gospel comes across as an indictment. When the gospel is preached to people, it's prosecution. We're witnesses. That's why we're witnesses. Because he's saying, you knew, but I elected you unto salvation. Now tell them. Tell them what you know. Tell them what you've seen. And tell them what they ought to know. It is why it comes across as fact. We're not trying to explain the intricacies of perhaps when we come to the unbeliever, maybe Christ died, maybe he didn't. Let's talk about all the theories. We're telling them this is what happened. This is what you've done in light of it. And you had better surrender while you have breath in your lungs. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone. You're assuming not only that they have sinned against God, you're assuming that they have to turn away from their sins. And you're assuming that they know that that has to be the case. And if they don't, what you see here is what is taking place. It's not, well, I wasn't as informative. It's not, well, I need to introduce a few programs. I need to, I need to wax eloquent a little bit more. I got to deal with a few uh, communication and speech theory items to maybe help them understand me a little clearly. No, they understood. If the gospel was clear in its proclamation, they understood you. They don't want to receive it. They want to continue to use their sin as a weapon against the truth. It's a weapon. They know who he is and what he has done by his power and creation. And who made it evident to them? Who made it evident to them? God himself. It says God himself made it evident to them. So we don't speak of natural revelation as some kind of lesser thing related to God revealing things. We do know that the term special revelation deals with what God intimately reveals to the unbeliever in salvation and saves them according to those things, to those precepts, to those commandments related to the gospel. And he gives the gift of faith and repentance for that person to believe. But natural revelation Although it is not necessarily that which saves a man, it is certainly that which indicts a man and tells him he will not be saved because he rejects the high king of heaven and therefore he is under judgment. So natural revelation certainly is according to the kindness of God for man to come to his knees and repent and plead with God. It's often asked that people say, well, what about those primitive civilizations and primitive peoples who don't have Bibles. My answer is that they know the revelation of God. They know what's in front of them in creation. They are to base on what they can see out there, fall on their face before God, cry out for mercy and say, reveal yourself to me on the basis of your name and on the basis of your creation. And then the Lord will grant to them the special revelation of his person and save them according to his mercy. He will grant it to them. He will grant it. He doesn't need uh, he doesn't need to necessarily shift land, air and sea in order for him to reach people. He can reach them. But his command to them is cry out or be handed over. Generation after generation. It's not this notion of live up to the light that you have. It's repent. Repent even in the face of the creation. Because if you don't, you'll turn around and worship the creation. So when people ask that question, they're asking how to remedy an effect. Not how do you deal with the cause. The cause is that primitive civilizations know who God is. They need to repent. 
They need to repent. And then he will reveal himself to them in that way. Related not only to his creation, but that he is the one who created. But make no mistake, all of this points to the living Christ. There is no salvation without Christ. And the problem here is not that they looked at creation and rejected it. They looked at Christ and rejected him. And so now they can't even orient themselves to the creation the right way. They're disoriented in a diabolical way. Because of what took place in the proclamation of the gospel in verses 16 and 17. And I would say that this hypothetical, no one has ever heard about Jesus, is certainly that. Because we've come to a place in the world civilization where even people come up with these false constructs of who they believe Jesus is in every religion known to man. They come up with them, be it by his direct name or be it by characters, his character. So they assault him in every single religion. So it's not a simply outright denial of who he is. It's people had better go about repenting in front of the one who truly is and who is testified to in scripture. But I'll tell you, this leaves no one off the hook because throughout the generations, we're looking at a passage that took place almost about 2000 years ago. The gospel went forth to the Jews and the Greeks and the barbarians. It's gone forth. What you see today is the rejection of that. You're seeing the rejection of it. So things are not so primitive that no one has heard it. The apostles made it certain that they would reach the remote faces of the earth. But even still, if you allow for that kind of hypothetical thinking, and as I've always said, be careful with hypotheticals because that's what they are they're not things that have happened there's things that you're thinking about trying to make contingencies for but with respect to the gospel people hear they hear it they know it's there and the earth itself testifies to the one who sent his son so there's nothing left undone because if we're to say that this isn't enough if it's enough for judgment, it's enough for repentance. It is enough for repentance. The problem is with what we're dealing with in our text is people will not repent. And I'm saying it's enough for repentance because it says God made it evident to them. He showed them. He showed them. It is evident within them. They see the world around them. They see God's perfection clearly seen in the world around them. They see it. Because God has made it evident or plain to them. And what is their response? What is their response? Well, no man or woman goes to hell without the knowledge of who God is and the scope of what is known as natural revelation. No one goes to hell without knowing those things about his creation. They know everything there is to know about it. That's why they're being punished eternally for it. They know everything there is to know about him in creation. So no one can say that they did not see imprints of his nature in the world around them. And again, people have all kind of hypotheticals. What about those who don't have their senses? Their natural senses. They can't see. They can't taste. They can't hear. Well, I'll tell you, there's people who have all of their senses and they reject everything there is to know about God. So away with all these hypotheticals that are simply contingencies in the mind to argue against God. The essential simplicity of what's being said here is that God has revealed himself very plainly. And he is the one who made it evident to the people he's shown himself to. He said, here am I. Here's how you can find me. Now look. That's essentially how he's revealed himself. He's made himself known. How? Well, Paul goes to the beginning of the creation of the world. And every man, woman, and child who has ever walked the face of this earth is acquainted with his creation. But they're also acquainted with the fact that they live in a fallen world. Post-fall. But he goes back to the beginning of the creation, whereby his invisible attributes are evident. 
This does not mean that they are invisible in the sense that the eyes cannot see their effect. However, they are not seen to the natural eye in the tangible sense at times. But they are clearly seen in the sense that man can understand what God has made. He can understand that God has made it, that God is eternal, and that he bears a divine nature. Speaking of God. Why do I say that? Because Paul says it. Look at uh, look at verse 20 for since the creation of the world, since the creation of the world, he's marking off time and time goes back to when the the, uh, world was created. He doesn't deal with the created order from a particular era in history and then leave us to figure out the timeline before that. He goes back to the creation. When the world was created, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Clearly seen, understood. The fall has not affected man's ability to understand the world around him in the sense of God's natural revelation to him. The fall has caused man to pridefully fail to worship God as he has revealed himself from age to age. That man will not worship him on his own accord. The first man certainly did. And then he fell. The first woman created from the man certainly did. And then she fell with the man. And because of the man's sin. But after that, everyone has seen his creation and everyone is without excuse. That means if you're if if he's saying you're without excuse, that means, you know, everything there is to know. You know, everything there is to know. And you can see it in the complexity of how people carry out their own affairs. You have unbelievers who have in this world, in this life, they have the kind of minds that develop the greatest ingenuities the greatest feats known to mankind the greatest technical uh, technological advances and they know all the intricacies of this and yet when you talk to them about the world that's created they stop and go no we don't have enough information about that but what God is saying is I've shown you everything I've made it plain to you and you fell you fell The standard has not changed in the sense of perfect righteousness. You fell from the standard. And in falling from the standard, you refuse to worship. And you can't get back to that standard apart from Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross and the salvation granted in his name. And instead of doing that, as Paul says in verse 17, what men do is they walk away from it. And they use all the lies to assault the perfect righteousness. And the one who is perfectly righteous. But he says they are clearly seen. Understand what that phrase means. They are plain to the perception. They are plain to the perceptions. It doesn't simply mean plain to the eye. It means even the perception. It is why it's a wicked thing to try to control perceptions. Because the perceptions even testify that God is who he says he is. But they are plain to the perception that God gives to every person related to how one perceives natural revelation. It's not only that natural revelation is given, it's that God has made it evident in how we perceive it to be related to him. So God deals with our perception of things. Satan assaults our perception of things. And you'll see that in the verses that follow. But listen to me. This alone does not save a man. I'm not saying that if you simply look at the creation, you're a believer. There are people these days in evangelicalism that have those kind of testimonies. And lo and behold, they pop up. And now they're pop-up shop elders. I'm not telling you that's what happens. You better have a clear testimony that you fell on your face before God. You trusted in his perfect righteousness alone. You confessed your sins before him. And thereby you were saved. And your life is changed. And your life bears the fruit of that repentance. That is the testimony of a Christian. But it's also that now I look at the creation as I ought to. 
I look at my fellow man as I ought to. But all this that's said, when I hear those kind of modern evangelical testimonies of I looked at creation and now I'm saved. And then I see the disconnect in how these individuals treat their fellow man as if they're not created in God's image. I understand why. Because what their testimony about is, it's not about special revelation and God's saving grace. It's about truth suppression. They're telling you openly that they've suppressed the truth. And here's how. I found a way in to stand in front of you and to be a churchman, but I never repented. I just saw his creation. Well, guess what? No big deal. Everybody else has. Everybody's seen his creation. And everybody in light of it has seen who he is. That doesn't make you special. What makes you elect is when he's chosen you on the basis of his son's saving work and the atonement. It renders man without excuse. The issue is not whether they know God. That's not, that's not the issue that's in play in this whole passage. They know him. They knew what he had done in creation in the display of his perfections in creation. They know it. It's plain to them. They can see it. They've experienced it. For as long as the seasons have changed, as long as there have been harvests, as long as there has been sowing and reaping, weather patterns, all the rest, the enjoyment of of, of the things that we enjoy in the, in the grace of his actual creation, even though we live in a fallen world, those things are evident to us. Evidences of the flood point us to something of his, uh, the nature of his wrath. Uh, the beauty of his, of his creation points us to his mercy, his care, his compassion. But you see the display of his perfections in creation, and so can they. And they can see what has been made in creation, and therefore are without excuses for rejecting the creator. They're without excuses. They're without excuse because of their rejection. They're also without excuse because of the great exchange that we're about to see. And I'm not talking about that great exchange of the cross. There is that. Most certainly. But there's a great exchange that the truth suppressor makes. And we'll talk about it. They knew God and held down or suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. In verse 21. And they failed to honor him as God and give thanks. For even though they knew God, Paul says, they did not honor him as God. They knew him as God. They didn't honor him as God. There's the distinction. That they knew him, they didn't honor him. They didn't pay reverence, worship, nor did they give thanks. I will tell you, the mark of a, of a regenerate heart is to give thanks to God. Not only for what he has done and what he has given, those are certainly elements of our thanksgiving, but for who he is. It's why you see it even in the Psalter, extolling his perfections, extolling his, you are, you are wondrous, you are merciful, you are righteous, you are a God of wrath, you are a God of peace, you are, you are all, it goes down the list of who he is. It is why it says you must seek him while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. It's also why it says that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, and the precursor to all that is, we must believe that he is. We must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. But listen, they fail to honor him as God and give thanks. Even though they knew him, even though they knew him. It doesn't say that they failed to know him. It doesn't say that they lacked information about him. It says that they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So when you have an avowed so-called atheist, an agnostic, come to you and say, God doesn't exist, you tell them, you don't believe that. You don't believe that. You're just making things up. I'm not making things up. You're making things up. It's not to sit up on a stage and put on our ties and our fancy suits and have debates. It's I'm telling you you're a liar. There's nothing to debate. 
You know that what you're saying is a lie. You know he exists. You can look at the creation and say that. You built atheism to use that as a weapon against what you know. And so man doesn't have a credible standing to deny anything because everything is made evident to him by God. He knows that, though. Man knows it. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Because they knew him and they wouldn't honor him or give thanks to him. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. We look at the world because you can certainly see this happening. And we ought not be surprised. Why does the world hate God? Why is the world exalting homosexuality, murder, all kinds of lust, greed? Why is the world... Uh, so high on self-preservation but you you notice all these things are because of the effect of their suppressing the truth it's an effect it's an effect that God showed himself to them through his creation and the effect was they didn't want to believe it they didn't want to believe it they became futile in their speculations they became futile in their speculations. They tried to theorize to you as to why the things are the way they are. You're not speculating as a believer. They are. Your proclamation of the testimony of scripture is not futile. Their, their uh, speculations are futile. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. It is why I say the consequence of truth suppression. You cannot day after day, moment by moment, suppress the truth and still maintain a sane view of the world around you. You cannot do it. You will begin to exalt every single thing that God hates. Notice here. I am not saying that Satan is not an enemy. I'm not saying that he is not a diabolical foe or an evil opportunist. I'm not saying that. He certainly is. He is our great adversary. But not once is he listed here. Even though he's guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And he certainly has his way with people who are in this condition. But listen. The, the text is plain. They've done this to themselves. Satan just took opportunity. They've done it to themselves. So they are without excuse. It doesn't say here the devil made me do it and it's all his fault. No, he's an opportunist. He certainly has control over those in his kingdom. But his subjects operate on the same paradigm that he does. Exalting themselves. Against God. They exalt themselves. It's why he'll join the same lake of fire that they do. But you see, it says their foolish heart was darkened. And then look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They knew God. They held down or suppressed the truth in unrighteousness because that's what suppression is. It is to hold something down, to push it down to the point where you know it's there. And with great force, you're trying to push it down so that it cannot come to the surface. They failed to honor him as God or give him thanks. And so they bear a mark upon themselves. And it is to reject God along the lines of his righteousness and fail to give thanks to him and fail to give honor to him. This is not simply its own consequence in a vacuum. That's what Paul is trying to explain. It's not simply its own consequence. And there it is isolated with no further spiral downward for both people and civilizations. This is not a static principle of take it or leave it proportions. It's not just, hey, I don't believe, take it or leave it. It is what it is. Hey, God has revealed himself. You don't believe it. 
You know, it's hey, it's hard to believe there's a lot of complexities out there. That's not what this text says. This text says everything is laid bare. Everything is plain. Everything is plain. When men reject God, what happens is not simply do they reject him, but they begin to raise up all kinds of speculation related to his created order. They begin to theorize and put together as law, policy, academic integrity, quote unquote, theories that relate to what they would say is this is how the world was made. This is not only how the world was made, but men begin to offer futile speculations of this is how the world ought to function. And they try to lock out God from those very theories. They begin to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But how? Paul tells you how by creating speculative and foolish theories related to his creation and related to his person. They redefine who God is. They become futile in their speculations. It is not stated that their speculations become futile. For that is certainly an effect. But rather they themselves became useless. They're useless. And they're futile. And that talks about not only what accompanies their uselessness, but it talks about the end goal of their futility. That they're useless. And to this end, their foolish heart is darkened. And you know what a foolish heart does? It doesn't repent. The foolish heart says, I'm wise. I'm wise. But you're looking at the breeding ground for wickedness. And the breeding ground for wickedness is rebellion. It's not ignorance. It's rebellion. Because this is the kind of ignorance if you would call it that that has all the details and says let's revolt and here's how we're going to revolt the breeding ground for wickedness is willful suppression of the truth it's why you have to call people to an objective standard it's willful suppression of the truth it's that they know they know the truth and they just reject it and in rejecting it they begin to live their lives and counter argument against it day by day. Let me help you understand the context as you're getting a clear picture of it. This is not a picture of hypothetical salvation. This is not a picture of a road to gospel proclamation in this sense. It's not a picture of it as the subjects are pictures of an impending salvation. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here is a people who've rejected that. They've rejected that salvation. So when they look at what has taken place here, they are guilty. The distinction comes in chapter 2 when it says, this is what an unbelieving world looks like. This is also what an unbelieving uh, both unbelieving Jews and Gentiles look like. And then Paul makes a distinction. He makes a distinction because you have the world doing this that we see in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. And then Paul says, but you self-righteous Israelites, you self-righteous Jews are passing judgment on these people. And I have something for you as well. Because you have the law. You know that you're not to live lawlessly, and instead you approach it in self-righteousness. So the distinction is coming. But this is not a picture of hypothetical salvation. This is a picture of judgment, because it says the wrath is revealed against them. This is a picture of persistent, determined unbelief. Persistent, determined unbelief. And in verse 22, all the while they were putting themselves, that's the idea, all the while they're putting themselves forward as those who are wise and enlightened since they have taken this course of foolishness. They're saying, I'm wise now. I've grown. I'm aware. It is why even in, the, in many of the academies, 
that so many believe that when they reach the height of foolishness, they are the most enlightened. It's why, because they've been handed over to think those things. They've been handed over to a depraved mind. And when you're handed over to something, it's that you wanted it. You were pursuing it, and God simply says, here, here you have it. I leave you to it. This is a picture of the height of deception. When you're a fool and you begin to profess that you're wise. Understand, the counterpart to that is not to be wise in Christ and to pronounce yourself a fool. That's not the counterpart. The counterpart is to be wise in Christ and glory in him for giving you the wisdom. That's the counterpart. For being thankful to him. For giving thanks to him for his wisdom. It's not to stand up in front of the people and to say, well, I am saved. God has given me the wisdom in his word, but I'm a fool. That means you're not a believer. You don't believe what's written if you call yourself a fool in light of this. Because he saves the foolish, they become wise, and you don't see where they return to be fools again. They attribute their wisdom to him, not themselves. But here it's different. They profess themselves to be wise. It did not produce the net effect of wisdom, even though they were saying that they were wise. They simply got other people to believe that they were wise and begin to altogether exalt foolishness together. And so the standard became foolishness called wisdom. It demonstrated that they became fools. When you see this happen, it's not that people are becoming foolish, it's that they're fools. They're already foolish. In fact, as they put these things forward to exalt their wisdom, they are heaping upon themselves more and more folly. More and more folly. And as I've said in all this, they promote themselves as wise. They say that they're wise. And the army of society's resources line up behind them at times uh, to say that it's true of them, even though they're fools. But I'll tell you, what happens next in verse 23, there are several exchanges that men make on the road to hell. Several. And those who make them are judged for all of them. But what follows in the verse ahead is how those exchanges take place. In verses 20 and 21, you see first they cast aside and abandon God. They abandon him. They know who he is and they leave him. And then they're suppressing what is clearly seen about him. And then they fail to honor him and give thanks to him and become themselves useless in their speculations and their theories. They begin to theorize. And I bet your mind is even going to what has taken place in the modern evangelical construct. That you have people who are just given over to theory after theory after theory. Or you're watching them use religion. As a weapon against God himself. Use theological speak without conviction of the theological uh, constructs. And without conviction of the theological teaching. But then you see the next exchange. They promote their folly as wisdom and put themselves forward as wise. They credential themselves as leading experts in wisdom. As really what they do is take folly and they call it wisdom. So they're really credentialing themselves in folly and calling it wisdom. They create a market for their foolishness. They create an economy, lucrative nature to their foolishness. And then what follows is blatant idolatry. Blatant idolatry. This all leads somewhere. Picture the whirlwind of water going down a toilet bowl. What follows is blatant idolatry. And here you see it is a truth exchange in which they call others to join them in their folly, falsely identified as wisdom. That is what you see here. 
and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Typically, when you reach this point, it's the last step. And everything that follows is an effect of that. It's an effect of idolatry. It's an effect. This loyalty to God is a product of idolatrous and an idolatrous heart. But also any disloyalties among people is a product of idolatry. Even adultery. If you look at Malachi, Malachi goes through all these things that the corrupt priests were doing. And then he says this. God hates divorce. And it almost shows up out of nowhere. And the reason he says it as he does is because he's painting a picture that, look, if you're demonstrating infidelity to God, you'll demonstrate infidelity to your wife. If you're a priest and you're demonstrating infidelity to God, to Yahweh himself in the old covenant context, you will demonstrate infidelity to the people and to your spouse. It's why he says what he says. And it's why, did you ever notice in the Gospels, it's the point of contention with the false leaders. They say, no, we should be able to divorce. Moses let us do it. No, it was your wicked hearts. You wanted one because you were infidels toward God. So you most certainly will be infidels toward one another. And that's what's in view. That they're exchanging this truth about God for a lie. And you'll see how it not only affects them with respect to creation, but with respect to one another. How they treat one another. But you see what follows is blatant idolatry. They know that they ought to praise God. In fact, they know that they're created to praise and worship. They know that. They know that they're supposed to bow and kneel and give reverence and fix their mouths to praise and honor. They know that. It's why what is said in verse 21, they fail to do that with the God of glory. They fail to do that toward him. And instead, what they do it toward is his creation and one another. It's why flattery is as it is in Proverbs. Because you're praising someone with your lips and giving them honor and reverence and espousing deity to them. When no man is worthy of that except the God-man Jesus Christ. But what they do is they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and pay homage and reverence to the creatures. And their speculation and self-deception is what led them there. It's what led them there. That's how they got there. Their own theories led them there. Their own futile speculations led them to that point. But it's like a hand-in-hand relationship. That they were idolatrous and so they exalted idolatry. They were foolish and so they exalted folly. And they did so by saying they're wise. Spiritual worshipers. They exchange the truth of God, true and divine wisdom, for a lie. And you know who the father of lies is? Satan. He's the father of lies. They abandon truth for a lie. They were driven to worship, but in their suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, they exchanged their worship for God to the worship of man and creatures, and they gave glory, honor, reverence, and blessing to the creatures rather than the Creator. And let me tell you, this was catastrophic. And we're dealing with the catastrophe as we speak. Don't think for one moment there was ever a time in this world's history, post-fall, where the world was somehow near to God's heart wholesale. In every generation, this has taken place. Have things gotten worse? Absolutely. But they have been getting worse ever since the fall. They just get worse and worse and worse and worse. To the point where what you see is that people no longer 
hide the fact that they're suppressing the truth. It's not that they stop suppressing the truth. They always suppress it. It's that they no longer hide the fact that they are. They just come out and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to use unrighteousness as a weapon against the truth. It's catastrophic. Because listen to me. What ensues next is homosexual sin and the pursuit of sexual immorality and passions inflamed for one another. They abandon God and his natural order of male and female procreation together. And therefore God hands them over to what they wanted most. Each other. And the next time we're together. I'm going to make this statement because I believe it's an apt, it's an apt statement. Next time we, we will see the downward spiral and devastating effects of abandoning, abandoning God and his clear, true, and holy revelation of himself. But listen to me. You don't have a picture in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 of utopia. You have a picture of what I would say is a view of, of, of people devouring one another. Of people with depraved minds turning on one another. Abusing one another. Taking away God's very natural order for what he has given to his people. Created in his image. And his people meaning creation. Not his elect, but his creation. And you see that they now turn on each other. I don't, I don't simply mean turn to each other. I mean turn on each other. They devour one another. And so the next time we'll see how that takes place. We'll see the consequences of abandoning God through unbelief that uses truth suppression and how I've mentioned as it causes, how it causes people to turn against one another. Because everyone likes to talk about how behaviors such as gossip, slander, disobedience and rebellion is turning on one another. You know what makes homosexuality so grievous is that it is people turning on one another and devouring one another. They're devouring one another. Because God said you ought to function male and female in this way. And since you've abandoned God, you now begin to turn on one another and devour one another. And then what, what, uh, what takes place is destruction. Destruction. And the Bible's clear in the passage that we'll preach, consequently on Easter Sunday. But the passage that we'll preach the next time we're together... We're going to look at how that takes place because it's important to view sexual immorality and homosexuality that way. That it's not expression. It's devouring. It's devouring one another. And so to look at it that way, you see the effects of it. You see the effects of it. But you also see it's a form of self-worship that consumes people. It's self-worship that is consuming The depraved mind does not use each other for the benefit of each other's best interests. The regenerate mind does that. The regenerate mind looks at one another and says, how may I serve you in a way that honors God and honors you? And then we honor each other. And then all the while, you only see that in the true church because that's how the body of Christ ought to function with respect to the spiritual gifts. But not, not the world outside. Because you see a perverse, a perverse form of self-worship built on the exchange of the truth of God related to male and female function that expresses itself in what I've said, homosexual sin. It ultimately expresses itself that way. It's built on the exchange of God's truth for the lie. That's not only what it's built on, but it's built on destruction. We'll talk about it next time because you see it has its own built-in penalties. So much has been said that in this area that we're hate teachers if we deal with it. Which is the truth being exchanged for the lie. That's the first layer of it. The second is who are we harming? Truth exchange for the lie because it's a matter of giving reverence to God based on what he said we ought to be and how we ought to function but then you also see that the form of self-worship 
Who does it hurt? You destroy yourself. You destroy yourself. And so you see this. But you see ultimately it's rebellion. It's rebellion toward God. And if a person says, doesn't matter. I don't believe in God anyway. That's a lie. It's a lie. You do believe he's there. It's why you do what you do. What you're doing is not an isolated act. It is a protest against the creator of glory. The creator of the heavens and the earth. It's a protest against the triune God. And so we have to speak of it that way. And those in the modern church who are speaking truthfully of these things, we're not hate teachers. We're teaching the truth. And the truth is built on love for the soul, love for mankind, love for your eternal plight. Hatred of sin in ourselves and everyone else. That's love. That's true love. But you don't hate the people to whom you're saying these things. They're too busy hating each other and calling it love. It is destruction, and we will talk about it the next time that we're together. Let's pray.